Today we begin our lesson on Leviticus. I trust that you have listened or read through the book of Exodus. And as we read through the book of Exodus, we saw how God told Moses to build a tabernacle in the midst of the camp of Israel. A holy God was going to live in the midst of sinful Israelites. So God had to give a lot of regulations to them so that they knew how to live in the presence of a holy God. We see that in this book, God speaks directly to Moses. In fact, 90% of this book is God speaking directly to Moses and Moses recording what God speaks. No other book in the Bible has so much direct revelation from God. Others are often stories, etc. God inspires the writer as he writes and records what he sees. But this is direct. And yet, though God is directly speaking to Moses, for most of us, when we read, we say, this is so strange. In fact, it's so irrelevant to us. How come God speaks so directly? It's from the mouth of God. And yet, it seems strange and irrelevant to us. The reason is God wasn't speaking directly to us. God was giving rules, regulations to the Israelites who live in a very different culture and time as us. So let me just give you maybe an example. Let's say someone from another country came to Singapore and during this pandemic to learn how Singapore handles this pandemic. Let's say this person came from Kazakhstan. Okay, There's a fact. Some officials came and learned from Kazakhstan. And when they listen to us, it sounds so strange to them. They live in a totally different culture, wide open spaces, and here our emphasis is on social distancing, like stay away from people. To them, it's like everybody's miles from everybody. Then we have things like uh, in the supermarket, this is how you must behave. To them, it's like we don't shop in a supermarket. We go to this wide open uh, uh, field market and, and nobody's that close to anybody. And then we have like all rules on e-learning. It's like to them, it's like, what are you talking about? Right? So while we read this, it sounds so foreign to us. But you know, the Kazakh officials came here not to learn the methods we did, but the principles, some principles they can pick up from this. So as we read the book of Leviticus, or as we listen to the book of Leviticus, I hope you will learn a lot of very useful principles, right? And especially the types of Christ in the book of Leviticus. Hard to find a book with more types of Christ than Leviticus. We'll come to that in a while, right? So now Leviticus basically is full of types, as I said, and for example, Exodus, we learn 
when the children of Israel were escaped from Egypt, first God delivered them first through the Passover. Then they got the law 50 days later. Now, isn't this very important? You see, because many times people think to be a Christian, you obey this, obey this, obey this, then you get saved. Now, that's totally wrong. If we know just the simple principle of how the Israelites escaped and then got the law, then we know we got to get saved first and then we can obey the law. In other words, obeying the law is not a condition of salvation. It's a response of a saved man. So if you don't know these things, then you get all mixed up. And a lot of cults today, a lot of even Christians today who have this wrong idea <clears throat> telling people, you must stop doing this, you must stop doing this, then you can be a Christian. No, no. Trust Christ first. Know that your sins are there. But the first thing you must do is trust Christ. Okay, so I hope this will help us. Jesus told his the people, right, that they must know the scriptures because they testify of me. When Jesus talked at that time, the only scripture was the Old Testament. You know the Old Testament, you know me. Paul said to Timothy, from a child you have known the scriptures that make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. Because Timothy was told of the Old Testament, he became wise to understand salvation clearly, which many of us don't, right? We're not clear. So the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. The New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. You've got to know both. And then you have a better understanding of Scripture, of salvation. Now, as you read through, you will have some impressions how we listen to Leviticus. Maybe better to listen to Leviticus rather than read. Uh, it's just like the Kazakh official comes here. He's just going to listen, not take notes of everything we say about social distancing. He's just going to kind of idea the principles. Okay, so as we listen to Leviticus, some impressions will come up. And number one will probably be, wow, it's very difficult, almost impossible to approach God. So many rules, I can't remember them. Frankly, I don't think any Israelite could remember all these rules. That's why the book is called Leviticus. It was Moses basically expecting the Levites to remember all this. And then the Levites will spend their time learning all these rules so they can teach the children of Israel. They were like the government officials and knew all the little bits of the law, right? So here we find, number one, it's so difficult to approach God, but after we read Leviticus, we should all be so thankful that we can confidently come to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. Number two, we probably will think as we listen, wow, to come to God's presence takes so much expense. You know, animals, bringing a bullock, having it slaughtered, good cow, just burn it to, to nothing, to ashes. Wow. Sheep. Endless animals being brought into it. So much innocent animals dying. 
so much mess and blood. Ugh. It's like, this is terrible. Everything is death and blood. Then we realize, for Jesus, it was very expensive. The sacrifice, this terrible death, bloody death. And we say, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to bring animal upon animal. For by one offering, Jesus has perfected all the sacrifices. Just one. In Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 10, 12, and 14. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. No need for us to bring animal upon animal. And probably, number three, you would all say, you mean so many unclean things there's food, so many foods you can't eat. It's so complicated. Which is clean, which is unclean animal to eat. Uh, there were so many people you have to stay away from because they have some discharge with their body or some skin disease. So many people you can't touch. And then there are so many times in houses you can't even live in it because some mold or something. It's like, my goodness, everything is like unclean around you. And you, you, you begin to say, what's all this about? When you read all this and you say, ah, the principle is that honestly there's far more sin around us than we realize. There's so many things that look so subtle, don't look so bad, and yet it could lead us to sin. It could be some friend, someone to avoid. It could be someone, something maybe, even some food that could tempt you to be a glutton and, you know, to be obsessed with food. It could be anything. Anything could lead us into temptation. And sometimes you need the Holy Spirit's wisdom to discern, you know, just like the Jews, this, is this animal clean or unclean? I don't know, right? We need the Holy Spirit to help us. So I hope this gives you a first overview of Leviticus. We now come to the five offerings that God told the children of Israel to bring to him. The first three of these five offerings are voluntary. You bring it not because you have committed a sin, you committed a trespass, but you just wanted to bring it to God. In chapter 1, it begins with the burnt offering. What does the burnt offering symbolize? It symbolizes that you want to offer yourself wholly to God. You want to consecrate yourself to God. In other words, you say, I am yours, God. All of me is yours. I want to do your will. That's what it signifies. So the entire animal is flayed, chopped up, and just burnt before God. This also speaks of as a type of Christ. Christ came to do the will of God, totally to give himself to do the will of God. So that's expected of us once we enjoy being a child of God. We want to give our life to God. 
In Leviticus chapter 2, the second offering is very different. It's called the meat offering in the King James, but actually the bad meats looks like flesh. But actually the better translation would be the meal offering. It was an offering, not bloody, it was of grain, fine, pure, purely uh, powdered grain. It was white. It was so finely pounded, it was even, signifying a sinlessness. Then there was also on this grain, this flour, was put oil on it. Olive oil signifies grace, anointing. And then there was also put frankincense on this offering. Frankincense, when it's burned, gives a sweet fragrance that floats up to God. So basically, what this is saying is that this offering is, after we consecrate ourselves as a burnt offering, the second is we offer our service, a service that is pure a service that is anointed by God, empowered by His Holy Spirit, that's an oil. And this service is sweet to God. It's pleasing to God. So this also is a type of Christ who had a sinless life, a life full of the Holy Spirit, anointed, and a life that was well-pleasing to God. So the Second offering, called the meal offering, is about our service. The third offering is called the peace offering. This offering is different. Though an animal is brought to the altar, unlike the burnt offering, where the whole animal is chopped up and just offered to God, this time the animal is divided up. The blood, the fat, the kidney, the insides are put on the altar and offered to God. But the best parts of the flesh, the shoulder of the animal and the breast of the animal, the good part of the meat, is separated for the priest to eat. So you see here that this same animal, one part is offered to God, the other part is offered to the priest to eat it. So in other words, there's a sharing of this animal in a meal. So this speaks of communion with God. God enjoying his part and the priest enjoying his part together. So this speaks of communion, fellowship peace, enjoyment of this fellowship with God. All right? So when we have these first three offerings, what we see here is after we are saved, we should consecrate. Lord, I want to do your will. My life is to serve you. Then secondly, you do your service as best you can sinlessly with the power of the Holy Spirit to please God. And when you have fulfilled burnt, 
offering and meal offering, you will have peace, fellowship with God. You have this closeness with God. Okay, so I hope you understand this is uh, uh, the significance, the symbolism of these first three voluntary offerings. They just brought the Israelites were told, when you feel like it, when you want to, go and do this. And do this before your God. So there were lessons in it. But the fourth and fifth offering are not voluntary. These are offerings you make when you have committed a sin. The fourth offering is called the sin offering. In the sin offering, what happens is when you have committed a sin unintentionally, intentional sins, there are no offerings, okay? You can't purposely go and commit a sin and then you go offer to, to negate it. That would be terrible. Then every time you commit a sin, just buy an animal and, and settle it. No, no. These are all about unintentional sins. Maybe you, you, you had some horrible thought about somebody or you swore uh, against someone, you know, under your breath. And oh, I shouldn't have done that. And you bring this animal, this sin offering, to God. And then the animal here in the sin offering is slaughtered. The fat, the blood, the insides are offered to God. And the animal then is brought outside the camp and burned there. It's a picture of Christ having to pay for our sins. Being outside the camp is a sign of rejection, how Christ was rejected on the cross. So the sin offering is not a voluntary offering. It's an offering we make. We say, sorry, God, I did that. I forgot about it. I didn't realize it. I'm so sorry, God. Today, we just confess our sins. In those days, they, we confess our sins. You ask the blood of Jesus Christ to cover us, and then we can get back to fellowship. In those days, they brought a sin offering. Now, the fifth one is a trespass offering. What's the difference? There's a slight difference here. A trespass offering is you sin, and in that sinning, you fail to pay something, right? For example, you say, I make a vow to God. I make a vow, I'll give this animal to God. And then, wow, the animal turns out to be so nice, an animal you didn't offer that to God. You just kept it for yourself. And then you were convicted. I sinned and I'm supposed to give this to God, but I didn't. So what you do is you go to the priest and then you make the offering. And then you tell the priest that I was supposed to give this, but I didn't. So the priest will then say this, what you're supposed to give is worth X amount add 20X to that. So in other words, you not only pay for your sin to get forgiveness, but you have to pay an additional 20% over what you failed to give, right? So this actually speaks of Christ's sufferings on the cross. First number for us, we got to not only say sorry, but we have to make amends, right? Sometimes you just say sorry and as if we, we did something to someone, we just say sorry. No, 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 all right? When we say sorry, we should make restitution, it also speaks of Christ when he died on the cross, he not only got back our salvation, he got, he got 
it back, but he got back the Garden of Eden for us. He got us back to our original position. But truly, we as Christians have more than what Adam has. For example, God walked with Adam in the Garden. God lives in me. That's a lot better than just walking alongside me. Right? So, this is an extra. Through Christ's sacrifice, I not only got back what was original, but I got a bonus addition on top of this. So I hope you understand these five offerings. It looks so complicated, there's so much details, but the symbolism, the types, and how it applies to us is important. So after this, we'll move on to the feast. We now come to the Jewish feast days. Again, we will see how beautiful the types are in the feast days. There are seven Jewish feast days where all Jewish male adults are supposed to gather together. They were going to enter the promised land, be scattered, but for three times a year during these seven feasts, they were all together, uh, come together. Now, the feast, seven feasts are divided into two main sections. The four feasts, the first four, show what Christ has already done. The next three show what Christ will do at his second coming. Then you say they have to go three times a day, so how uh, three times a year. So how do they do that? These first four feasts are divided into three, which are back-to-back, back, one after the other, and one which is 50 days after this one. So, one visit in the first early part of the year, another gathering, second time of the year, and then towards the end of the agricultural year, the next three feasts come together. All right? So can you see three? One, three. That is basically what it is. These are what Christ has done, these are what Christ will do. Let's look at the feast from the Jewish viewpoint. From the Jewish viewpoint, these feasts fitted their agricultural seasons, their planting and harvesting time. The Jewish year starts in about March, April. That's when the Passover is. The Passover month is the start of the Jewish calendar. Today I'm recording on Good Friday, Passover. The hot month are we now? April. So March, April is their first month. They don't coincide with our, our months, the Jewish months. Okay, so let's look at the feast. As far as the Jews were concerned, they gathered together to thank God after their first harvest in the early part of the year. And then, again, 50 days later, the end of the harvest, they gathered to thank God again. And then, after a long summer harvest, they gathered to thank God again. And then, after September, October, there's no more gathering because it's winter time. You can't travel uh, conveniently during winter time. So, these three fees are at the time of the harvesting, growing time of the land. Let's look at the first feast, the feast of 
Passover. We already studied that. It, it was inaugurated in Egypt. The Passover lamb was slaughtered. So that was the 14th day of the first month. That's a Jewish month, huh? March, April. But before they could even slaughter that sheep, they were to clear all the leaven in the house. Leaven always speaks of sin in the Bible. Yeast, because yeast tends to spread everywhere like sin. It's a natural way to spread. So they were to clear the house of yeast, and for one week, there would be no yeast in their house. They eat bread without yeast. It's called the second feast. First is Passover. Back to back with it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For one week, no leavened bread, hard bread. Okay. So the third feast is the third day after the Passover. Wow, all back to back. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread jammed together. And then on the third day, they have the Feast of First Fruits. The Israelites would take their first harvest of grain and wave it to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this harvest. First Fruits also speaks of Christ's resurrection. In the New Testament, you say, Christ is the first fruits of those that rise from the dead. We all rise from the dead, but he was first, right? So, first fruits happen on the third day after the Passover. Passover in Egypt. They ran, and then on the third day, they escaped from Egypt. New life began. Christ died on the cross. On the third day, Christ rose from the dead. First fruits of them that will be resurrected. I hope you can see the sequence in our Christian life. Huh? We, one, with Christ died for our sins. We realize we are sinners. Wow, we are, we are so sad. We have to put away sin from our life. Okay? And then, we are born again, third day. I mean, this is like, you know, in a sequence, but actually it's immediately. We are born again. When Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. Okay? Now, after the Feast of First Fruits, first harvest, the first time they harvest the grain, they waved it. Then the harvest continues. Usually, harvest in those days are by hand. Takes a while, takes seven weeks. Seven weeks is 49 days. So on the after 49 days, on the 50th day, Feast of Pentecost, they wave their last green offering. The end of the harvest. Thank you, God. Here, first, thank you, God, for the harvest, the first one. And then this one, thank you, God. Right? So these are the first for Pentecost. What does that remind you of? After the Israelites left Egypt, 50 days later, they arrived at Sinai and they got the law from God. For us, Pentecost in the New Testament, 50 days 
after Christ died and rose again, Pentecost happened in the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit came down. How does that link up? Sinai is the law given. Holy Spirit is the power we have now to fulfill this law. You know, the Israelites, they were given the law, but they broke it. That's why Moses threw the, the, the tablets of the commandments down because you broke the law. And then 3,000 died at Sinai for their sin. At Pentecost, 3,000 got saved, we read in the book of Acts. Okay, so I hope you're seeing this sequence now. These are what has already happened. Christ died for our sins. Help us to put away our sins. We are born again, and then we have the power from the Holy Spirit as we use and as we know how to partner the Holy Spirit, we overcome our sin and fulfill the will of God. Okay, So this has been done by Christ at his first coming. Now, after the Feast of Pentecost, there's a long break. The Jews had this break, and this time they were harvesting other things, not the grain, other fruits, the grapes, the olives, and whatever fruits they were harvesting. And then finally, at the end of the growing time of the year, as winter is coming in, the fifth, sixth, and seventh feasts take place by the fifth one. It's called the Feast of Trumpets. So the trumpet is blown to signal the end of harvest, end of our harvest, okay? And that speaks of the second coming of Christ. Christ will come with a trumpet sound. The trump of Lord of God shall sound and the Lord shall come. Wow, this is speaking of the second coming of Christ. Not yet, okay? So the fifth, sixth, seven, not yet. What is between the first four and the last three is called the church age. We are living in it now. Unknown years, how many years, we don't know. But when the trumpet sounds, the rest will come very fast. The trumpet sounds on the first day of the seventh month, Jewish month, around September, October, getting cold already. On the tenth day is the next feast, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement in the book we are, going to, we are studying now is when the high priest enters into the holiest place once a year and makes an offering for the Israelites that they are acceptable to God. In the second coming of Christ, when the trumpet blows, the Day of Atonement is when the remnant of the Jews will now know Christ, receive Christ, and be accepted. God never forsook the Jews. And then the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. They put pitch tents in Israel. They stayed in the tents under these little huts, so to speak, and celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. It speaks of when Christ comes the second time, God will tabernacle, will dwell with us forever and ever. I hope you see the beauty of these seven feasts, four and three, right? And the Jews 
probably didn't see all these things, but it's all revealed in the New Testament. How wonderful. We now come to the tabernacle. The word tabernacle simply means a tent used for religious purposes. God wants to dwell with his people. He walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, latest in John 14, 1, 14, says the word was made flesh and dwelt among men. And one day in the new heaven, new earth, we will be with God forever. So God said, build this tabernacle. And if we were to see this tabernacle, let's say we had a helicopter at the time and flew over the camp. As we flew over this camp of two to three million Israelites, all orderly, their tents are very orderly around the tabernacle. It was right in the center of this mass of tents, but in an orderly way. If you want to think of the size of the tabernacle, it would be roughly half the length of the football field and half the width. So really, it's like a rectangle, about a quarter of the size of a soccer field. So that gives you an idea, not a very big structure. And if you were to stand on the ground and look at it, it looks very plain, just white sheets, literally, like set up white sheets, almost like a hospital, you know, in a hospital, these screens around. It's in white, white linen. It's about the height of seven feet tall, you know, taller than anybody. So nobody could really look in. As all the people who lived around it, but nobody could come near it, the Levites were around it, nobody was allowed to touch it. God wanted to be in the midst of his people, with his people, and yet God wanted to help them to understand how to be reverent, to reverence God. Now, if you were now to stand at the entrance of this structure, okay, this white sheets, there's only one door, the door that faces east, and this door, unlike the rest, which is white, is beautifully embroidered, right? It's like curtains. And you can just go through these curtains, and these curtains are beautifully embroidered in blue, in purple, and in scarlet. Three colors. What are these three colors? Blue, heaven. Christ came from heaven. This curtain represents Christ. You have to go into God's presence through Christ. So Christ came from heaven. Purple represents royalty. He's a king. And scarlet represents the color of blood. From heaven, this king came and died and shed his blood for us. So you have to go through this one door. As you walk through this one door, you part the curtains and you go in. Ordinary Jews were just allowed to go into this courtyard, not into the tabernacle, not into the tent itself, into this outer courtyard. And the moment you went through that door, that curtain, the first thing you saw was this huge 
burn altar for sacrifice, animal sacrifice, right? The altar is like as long as my arm can stretch and a little bit longer than that, okay? It's a square and it's a tall altar, reasonably tall. It's made of bronze. Bronze can really stand high temperature. It's wood lined with bronze. And if you went in like any Israelite on any day, you would see a lot of blood. You would see fire burning and you see animals being slaughtered and sacrificed there. Not a nice sight, a quite a uh, sight. After this beautiful curtain, you see this, uh, this sight. So the first thing you see is Christ's death for us. Okay? You've got to picture the journey in. Through Christ, he died for us. Then as you walk past this altar, this massive altar, you come to another basin, maybe like this big, this big, right? And it contains water. It's called a laver, from which we get the word lavatory. You know, laver is the word, a place to wash. So the priest, after they slaughtered the, the uh, animals, had to wash their hands before they could enter into the tent proper, okay? So, this speaks of, after we are saved by Christ, we need to have our minds cleansed with the Word. Sanctify them through thy truth, through thy Word, all right? The Word will cleanse us. So, a Christian is saved, and then he needs to know the Word of God. Now, he's going closer into the presence of God, and then he goes through this next curtain, and this next curtain is the entrance into the tent itself. Now this tent, if you look from the outside, is just scarlet, red hide, animal skins dyed red, totally red. So there's white walls of sheets of linen, and then this red thing, right? The white signifies the purity of Christ, and then the red, the blood that was shed for us. So as you enter through the next set of curtains, exactly like the first set, blue, scarlet, purple, and scarlet, same. It's only one way to get to God's presence. Christ, Christ, right? And now as you enter the second set of curtains, you, you enter into this inside of this simple looking red structure and inside is wow it's very different it's all gold inside literally all pure gold all gold the gold is made of acacia wood and then lined with pure gold wood signifies the humanity of christ Gold signifies the divinity of Christ. 100% God, 100% man. And the whole thing, the walls and the roof are pure gold, but the ground is pure dust. Reminding us that though we are dust, we can come into this presence, this glorious presence of gold. And then as you walk into this place full of gold, looks like a gold shop, pure gold. And then on the left, it's a big lampstand, the Jewish lampstand. You know, they call it menorah. Uh, everybody knows the symbol of Israel. The one stand and the six uh, things and one, so seven lights. 
And this light is the only light inside this totally enclosed place. This menorah is tall, about the height of an average lady. Okay? And the lamp there, olive oil, is burned continuously. There's light continuously. Jesus says, I am the light. In our spiritual journey, we need to be cleansed. We need to have our saved by Christ, washed through his word, and then the light of Christ to lead us. Thy word is a lamp to our feet, light to our path. God leads us. Christ leads us. Then, as we see this menorah on the right, it shines its light on something on the on the left, I mean, and then shines on something on the right. It's like a coffee table there. And of course, pure gold. Everything's pure gold. The lamp is pure gold. And the so-called low table there is a table of show bread. Twelve big loaves of bread there. Twelve signifying the tribes of Israel. Twelve, the twelve apostles, basically. Christ will feed us and nourish us. Okay? He, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So as we enter into God's presence, He will lead us with His light. He will nourish us with His bread. So this gold light lamp, this gold coffee table with the blums, us, loaves of bread on top, and in front of you as you go in, there's a stand there, like a stand, not big, it's also called an altar, but it's not the altar for sacrificing animals. It is a fire constantly burning with frankincense on top. Frankincense always symbolizes sweet smell that lifts up. The smoke of frankincense only goes upwards, not downwards. It is signifying the unending prayers of Jesus Christ. Alright? So, the average Israelite could only go to the outer court, bring his animal and sacrifice. The priest would then, after sacrificing the animal, the one on duty would wash his hands and go into the holy place. Alright? The second set of curtains, he goes into this tent, all gold, except for the, the door. And the priest there, his job is to keep the lights always shining and the frankincense always there. Every week he changed the bread. Then there's another set of curtains to go through. Only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement can go through this next set of curtains into the Holy of Holies where God's presence is. The cloud of fire by night, the cloud of uh, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, lands right on the top of a box called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant also made of wood, lined pure gold, and on the lid is called the Mercy Seat, and that's where God's presence on earth is. That's where God spoke to Moses, right? And then overlooking this lid of gold are two cherubims. Cherubims are always guarding angels, like the Garden of Eden. There are two cherubims. And they were like kneeling down with their wings, looking down at the mercy seat. The two of them looking down at the mercy seat, their wings touching. In the Ark of the Covenant were just few items. The most important was the laws of God. Because only 
Christ could keep all the commandments. Okay, so as we come into this, we see the symbolism, we see the types of our Christian faith. To come so close to the presence of God, first need to be saved, have God's word, be led by Christ, be fed by Christ, Christ's intercession, and bring us into this glorious presence. As a Christian, you stand on the outer court. Nothing very nice, just saved. That's honorary white around you, dust on the floor. But as you get closer to God's presence, you enter the curtain of the tabernacle proper. Oh, the holy place. It's gold. It's amazing. This speaks of as we come closer and closer to God, what an amazing joy and blessing it is. Right? So this is what it is. And when Christ died on the cross, he made a loud shout, it is finished. And in the temple of Jesus' day, the veil was rent. Today, all of us can go right into God's presence. In the old days, only the high priest could go in. Let us now summarize what we have learned in this book of Leviticus. What we are seeing is what God expects in response to his presence with his people. The tabernacle is there. The pillar of cloud comes down. At night is a pillar of fire all over. The two million people could see the presence of Almighty God in their very midst. So this is, should be their response. They've been delivered from slavery. They now are in the presence of Almighty God. So God expects a response from them. So he tells them, bring offerings to me. So we learn the five offerings. The first is the burnt offering. Come, consecrate yourself. Give yourself to me. Then the second is the meal offering. Come, serve me in purity. The third is the peace offering. Come, communion with me, fellowship with me. The fourth, the sin offering. If you have sinned, bring a sin offering. Ask forgiveness from God. The fifth, the trespass offering. If you have trespassed, come, ask forgiveness and make restitution with 20% extra. Right? So basically, this is their response to them. Then the feast they are to have is to remind them of what God has already done. The first feast, the feast of Passover, how they were Escape destruction in Egypt. Let's remember that. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread to say they were going to put away all the sinful life in, that they had in Egypt, the idolatry and the sinfulness. Then the Feast of First Fruits, how they got out through the Red Sea, the mighty deliverance. Right? So they were given 
a new life. And then at Mount Sinai, they were given the law. Okay, for us, that's the Feast of Pentecost. They call it the Feast of Weeks. They were given the law. For us, at Pentecost, exactly the same day, 50 days after Christ rose from the dead, we were given the Holy Spirit to help us not just, they were given the law, but we were given the Holy Spirit to help us obey the law. Then the Feast of Trumpets speaks of future events. One fine day, Christ will come again as the Feast of Trumpets. The Day of Atonement on that day, the whole church will be with God, including the Jews, the remnant Jews. See, the Day of Atonement always for the Jews was a day they got forgiveness from God when the high priest went in into the Holy of Holies and offered blood there. But on the last day after the trumpet is blown, when Christ comes down, the remnant Jews will have be brought up to God. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles, and we will dwell with God forever and ever. New heaven, new earth. Right? So I hope as you read, you see all these things. Then you see the architecture of the uh, tabernacle. From the outside, looks so uh, looks kind of scary. Eh? We go to the gate, because the gate, the, the curtain is Christ, the blue, the purple, the scarlet. You go to the first gate, you need to go through Christ. Everything is through Christ. It's one way. The first curtain, then you see the second curtain into the holy place, the third curtain into the holy of holies. You can look at all these in Google. There are a lot of pictures. You can see the descriptions better than what I can ever describe. And there's plenty of information to see. So just go and see it for yourself. Okay? So as they went through the first gate, they saw animals of blood and dead carcasses and fleet and burning. Yeah. Alright? Then after that, the labor. Okay, the first one is we need Christ's death. Then we need the word of God to clean our minds, all the wrong way of thinking. Then they went through the next curtain into the holy place. Whoa, this is all gold. Amazing. As you come into God's presence, the beauty of being in God's presence is come closer and closer. All gold. And there's this menorah, this lamp on your left. Wow, lighting everything. You know, it's, you know, against the gold reflecting all of it. It's so bright. Oh, it's like God's leadership is so wonderful. And you see the bread on this side. The nourishment, big loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread for you. And then in front of you, this altar of incense, sweet fragrance, endless, endless fragrance, endless light, endless fragrance, bread always there. The fragrance is Christ's intercession for us all the time. Then finally, you enter the last curtain, also the same color, blue purple and scarlet, and then into the Holy of Holies. In the old days, only the high priest could get in there once a year. But when Christ was on the cross, paid the full price, said, it is finished, the temple in the curtain in the temple was rent from top to bottom, signifying today we can come right into God's 
presence, amazing presence of God. All right, so all these things I hope will help you to, to when you read Leviticus. In fact, I would recommend you listen to Leviticus. When you read, you get stuck. You get caught in the woods and you fail to see the big picture. If you were to listen, choose the, the version that you're comfortable with, you know, it could be ESV or King James or any version. It doesn't matter, NIV, Audio Bible. And listen, just listen, because that's what the Jews did. The Jews for 1,500 years, all they did, they had was every year, the Torah, the first five books, Okay, this book is the third book, Leviticus, right? This book, all the five books, all the five books the Jews heard through once in the synagogue, once a year. All right, today you go to the Jewish synagogue, the same. Passages are taken, and by the end of one year, the entire Torah is heard. Heard, not read. Heard. It's read by someone, you hear it. Right? So that's what the Bible was written for. In those days, nobody had a copy of the Bible. All these were scrolls. They were red. And then they were rolled up, put in beautiful embroidered cloth, put back in the closet in the synagogue. Nobody could touch it. Right? So today, don't feel, oh, I'm doing something wrong by listening to the Word of God. Nothing wrong with that. Because we go to school, everything is studying, 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 looking at pages, we feel guilty. But I think if you read, you tend to get stuck. You tend to get very slow, right? But you hear, and with this background that you have, you can see the whole picture. And our goal is for you to see the beauty of the Bible, not for you to go deep into it, but to see the overall connectivity of the Bible. Okay? So this I suggest then. The last part of the book of Leviticus tells us about the blessings and the curse. If they were to obey God, they will be blessed. If they did not, they will suffer horrendously. Let me read to you the what was warned to them if they failed, and it actually came to pass in Jewish history. Leviticus chapter 26 if ye will not, 20, uh, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27, And if ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you, <clears throat> also in fury. And I even I will chastise you seven times for your sins. And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. This came to pass. I will destroy your high places, cut down your images, cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. And I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries into desolation. I will not smell the savor of your sweet orders, and I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then the land, then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. And ye be in your enemy's land, even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbath. 
and as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. And upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness into your hearts, in the lands of your enemies, and the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth, and they shall fall one upon another, as it were before a sword when none pursueth, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the heathen, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up, and they that are left of you shall pine away in your iniquity in your enemy's land, and also the iniquities of their fathers shall be pine away with them. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they trespass against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of the enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, they then accept of the punishment of the iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land. God never forsook them, but they went through horrendous trials. Think of them under the Nazis, how fearful, how helpless they were, how they ate their daughters in the in the siege of Jerusalem, all this came to pass. May God bless you as you read Leviticus or as you listen to Leviticus and see the beautiful Christ in it, the beautiful gospel.